You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We'll be looking together at Acts chapter 17. You'll find this on page 926 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading together chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. Page 926 in the Pew Bible, and it's Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of God. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Many have called the millennium that extends from the 5th century to the 15th the Dark Ages. And there is some considerable debate as to whether or not that's true. On the one hand, God was as much at work during those ages as he is now. Indeed, since the fall, the application of redemption has never ceased. Sinners being brought into the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, when the Bible was wrested from the common people, a type of darkness did fall. They were left to wander through life with very little heavenly light. You remember what David said in Psalm 119? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But when the scriptures were taken away, the lamp went out and the light was extinguished and those ages became dark. Pure religion diminished. Public morality declined. And vital faith was nothing but a flicker. In Describing those ages, George Robinson says this, Truth again was on the scaffold. Error was mighty on the throne. I think he's right. And this is true of any age or place in which the Bible is obscured or neglected. Well, the passage before us is an implicit exhortation to keep the scriptures central. And this is true in part because the sincere Christian loves the word of God. David says in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
And we love God's word because the author is God who inspired every part of it. The Bible is like a letter written from a best friend, something that we cherish. We love it because it's true and good and rich and profoundly satisfying to the soul. Indeed, as our forefathers have mentioned, it has the light and the power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and to build up believers. In addition, according to Ephesians 6, God's word is the sword of the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit himself who formed and fashioned this weapon. And it is by his almighty power that the word is quickened and made effective in contexts like this when we preach. Scripture, if laid up in the heart and used wisely, can ward off temptation. For example, this was the weapon that our Lord himself used in the wilderness, as you know. When Satan advanced, Christ took up the sword of the Spirit and he defeated the devil. And that's why the apostle says in Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if we neglect the Bible, we'll be like soldiers on the field of battle without a weapon. Totally defenseless. And as we'll see, the Bereans had a mind to take up and wield the word of God. From Thessalonica, Paul and Silas traveled to Berea about 50 miles southwest. And as was their custom, they entered the synagogue where Paul preached Christ. And the scenario was familiar. We've seen this before. His ministry met with different responses. Many believed the gospel. They were converted and became members of the church. Praise God. And Luke says not a few of these were Greek women of high standing. And along with the believing Greek men, they formed a solid group, a sound core. But others did not believe. And they were subsequently easily stirred up by jealous Jews. And these Jews came from Thessalonica, where Paul had been, and they agitated the unbelieving crowds. And this opposition was aimed primarily at Paul, who ended up leaving Berea by himself. Silas and Timothy stayed behind, but not for long, because they soon followed their mentor, And this bit of historical information is preparing us to consider his ministry at the Areopagus. But I think it's important for us to notice two things from this particular passage. First, missionary work is not always as glamorous as some might imagine. You know, sometimes we listen to missionaries who truthfully, I'm not disparaging them at all, We listen to missionaries tell great stories, and we're tempted to sensationalize what they're telling us. But if Paul and Silas's experience is any indication, missionary work is hard and dangerous. Only by God's grace can frail men and women minister in such conditions. The duties are monumental, and the circumstances are usually difficult. Just in this past week, I have listened to two men on different occasions describe their experiences overseas. 
Both are godly Christian men, and both of them testify to the difficulty of cross-cultural ministry. It's not easy. One of them said, it's like sand in your shoe. So many mistakes, so many misunderstandings. It requires patience and grace, and I think this ought to create within us a sympathetic spirit toward missionaries. It's hard. John says in 3 John 1, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is this, that it confirms the gospel continued to spread in the ancient world. Despite the mixed reactions to the message, the gospel continued to flourish. And indeed, wherever the truth of Christ was carried in the ancient world, it bore fruit. Isn't that amazing? And the fact is that the spread of the gospel has not abated even to this day. And this proves true. Our Lord's prophecy in the first chapter of this book that the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. We're part of that. A remarkable thing. And isn't it interesting how Luke describes those who listened to Paul? You heard it. He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. How countercultural is that? Politically incorrect. They're superior. They're more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, you know, oftentimes the word noble is used in reference to one's illustrious ancestors. For example, a prince descended from a distinguished lineage is considered noble. It carries the notion of being well-bred and well-educated and well-positioned in society. That's nobility. But I think here, the word is used neither for birth, nor for breeding, nor for rank. Here, noble denotes a quality of mind and heart, a disposition toward the word of God. The Bereans were more honorable, upright, generous, and principled than those in Thessalonica. And that's because they highly esteemed the scriptures as the very word of God. They were willing to receive the truth with meekness and a readiness of mind as the word of God. They didn't harden their hearts. They were willing to listen to Paul's exposition. Better yet, the Bereans, it says, received the word with all eagerness. How many of us can say we're eager to get here to listen to God's word? They heard Paul's preaching. And they examined everything he said by the scriptures. And of course, it's not that everybody embraced the gospel here, but they were committed to the Bible. And if the things that Paul was saying were true, then Messiah has come. God's promise has been fulfilled. The Savior has arrived. Salvation has been accomplished and it's being offered to us. And that's why Luke describes these Bereans with the word noble. 
I'm struck, and maybe you were too. He said nothing of them being more intelligent, nothing about them being more zealous or godly or charitable. He said they were more noble. And the manifest difference between those in Thessalonica and those in Berea was simply their love for the word. Their love for the word. They were willing to hear the claims of Christ and to take those claims seriously. We sense no hint here of prejudice or bigotry, no jealousy or resentment. These people were of noble minds. They were serious about the faith. Whether or not they were eventually converted, they were serious. They were ready to consider the claims. And that made them commendable. And I think such nobility is one of the qualities that often characterizes great people. Proverbs 25, the wise man tells us, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search them out, to examine them. Noble leaders, for example, avail themselves of all and every store of wisdom. They search out principles and methods of justice and good government. Noble leaders, that is. The noble king presses further into knowledge as he seeks to understand how to govern this people. He recognizes his own limitations and he strives to grow in prudence. That's nobility. And the same is true of a person who seeks the will of God by searching through the scriptures. That's noble. It's the way of the Bereans, and more importantly, it's the way of godliness. In John 5.39, our Savior himself said, search the scriptures. Search them diligently and search them earnestly, and more importantly, investigate everything carefully. And the noble Bereans were in a position here to find the greatest treasure of all. Have you seen it that way? Did you think of that as we read through it? They were positioned to find the greatest treasure of all. Because Paul was proclaiming Christ. And the Bereans were on the brink of discovery. Jesus himself says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. And of course, Jesus there is referring to himself. Jesus is the real treasure. He's the pearl of great price. And if you find him, better yet, if he finds you, you become truly rich. Wealth unimaginable. And the gospel is the field in which Christ, the great treasure, is hid. And the Bereans at this point were searching in the field. The Thessalonians didn't even walk in the field, let alone search in it. But these people were on the brink. And on a daily basis, with all eagerness, they were diligently examining the things that Paul was telling them, and they were not receiving anything uncritically or without thinking. 
because they understood that the claims of Jesus Christ were far too important for them to be in any way indifferent. Sadly, many in our day are indifferent. They could care less. Churches are filled with people who are indifferent. They could care less what the claims are. They just want to get together and have fun fellowship. Paul reasoned from the Scriptures, and the Bereans examined these things by the Scriptures. And the same thing happens here each and every week. Indeed, it occurs twice on Sunday, which thrills me. You know the drill. The text is announced. The pages flutter. And people and pulpit consider these things together. Just as the Bereans poured over these passages, we try carefully to work our way through them. And that's how God intended it, comparing text with text and reasoning from the Scriptures, seeing if these things are true, week after week after week. And God's people brings the preacher's words to the touchstone of Scripture. So let me draw our first application. I think we can be confident in the truth and bold in the face of close and careful scrutiny. When it comes to the witness of Scripture, we have no reason to be afraid. There are many skeptics in this world. There are scoffers and doubters and cynics galore. And ever since Eden, the devil and his henchmen have been trying to discredit the word of God. They try to sit in judgment upon the revelation given from heaven, and in so doing, they seek to usurp divine authority and to bring the Bible into disrepute. And in the words of Paul, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But what's interesting is that God takes special notice of, and he's much pleased with, the people who believe this book. He commends those who rightly discern between good and evil. As Elder Miller read earlier, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles, not as Governor Felix did when his conscience temporarily pricked him. That was a momentary pang. He heard Paul preaching about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And he was overcome by sudden terror. It didn't last long. And the governor never listened to Paul again. And as far as we know, he died in his sins. No, he who trembles at his word has this deep and abiding reverence for every syllable. Oh, how I love your law, said the psalmist. It's my meditation all the day. David, David trembled with awe at God's majesty and his purity, his justice and his love as revealed in the scriptures. Such a person reads the promises of God and begins to get a glimpse of God's redeeming glory. You can't get that on a mountaintop. You get it from the word of God. The word is received not in a spirit of criticism, but being more noble-minded, it's received out of reverence and godly fear. 
And as he peers into Scripture, such a person realizes that these are the most important realities. Not the economy, not politics. That's important. It has its place. These are the most important realities. Do you remember when Hilkiah found the book of the law and Shaphan read this book to the king? Josiah hears the word for the first time. He tears his clothes and immediately institutes reform. And this is how God responds. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you declares the Lord. The Lord took notice of him. The Lord listened to him. He was pleased with him. And it is to such a person that God looks with favor and is disposed to bless. You see, his word, this book is worthy of our confidence, our esteem, and our devotion. And there is no need to fear those who try to discredit the inspired scriptures. Paul welcomed the noble Bereans who examined everything by the word of God. They found nothing untrue, and no one ever will. Every attempt to do so has been in vain. No one has ever disproved the Bible. Search the history books. You'll never find anybody who's disproved it. It can stand up under the closest of scrutiny and withstand the most vigorous attacks. I love what Charles Spurgeon, well, it's at least attributed to Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, I think he said this. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. That's the word of God. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It's a word of hope for lost sinners who live in a sin-cursed world. And we embrace it by faith, and we do so with a solemn and joyful and abiding trust. And there may be people who refuse the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, but they cannot disprove the Bible. Jesus is Lord. And everything associated with that statement stands up to scrutiny. He's Lord. Read the book of Revelation. It talks about a throne over and over again. And it's a good thing because you and I risk everything on the basis of this book. Have you ever thought about that? Everything we are, everything we hope for is based upon this one book. Why? Why would we risk everything on a book? Because it teaches us about another world beyond the grave. Because it teaches us about a better world than this one. One in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who trusts in Jesus will enjoy the greatest of blessings. As it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And people often stop right there. But notice what it says. 
These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. They're in this book. So let's be bold in studying and believing and putting into practice the word of God. Tremble with reverence and awe and don't miss the promise of salvation. You know something, a whole generation of Israelites heard God's word and witnessed his miracles and died unbelieving. As Elder Miller read again, good news came to us just as to them. They had the gospel, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith in those who listened. So let's beware of falling away through an evil, unbelieving heart. Let's tremble at God's word. But then secondly, let me say this. We ought to try to be noble-minded when it comes to submitting to God's truth. I'm referring now to those areas where truth may cross your preference. That's not easy because the Jews in Thessalonica were unwilling to submit themselves. It's an authority, by the way. It's not just a friendly guide. It's an authority. And the Jews in Berea were more noble because they were willing to listen to it, and many of them acquiesced to it. We agree with the fundamental truths. There's not much danger in that, as far as I can tell. Justification by faith. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning, senior high. We believe it. Okay, that's fundamental. But it may be different with the secondary truths that are more difficult to grasp. And being secondary doesn't make it any less authoritative. Yet being secondary does make it more difficult to form a consensus. Let me give an example. The mode of baptism. Let's talk about that. The mode of baptism, how you do it, is secondary. It's not necessary. But it's taught in the Bible. In the sacrament, the water has to be applied somehow. So we should be willing to hear God's word and embrace whatever it teaches. And if you find that it teaches sprinkling, then sprinkle. And if you find that it teaches immersion, then immerse. But the point is, whatever you find, do it. Submit to it. Because you found it in the word of God. Being noble-minded means a readiness to embrace whatever it teaches. It's amazing how many things I have unlearned since my days in seminary. Plenty. And I'm not disparaging seminary in the least. I'm disparaging myself. My old professor used to talk about squatters' rights to error. Have you ever heard that phrase? You know what a squatter is? Somebody who lives there long enough to assume it's theirs. Meaning, if you've had an error long enough, you've got squatters' rights. You can keep it. Over the years, my beliefs and practices have been challenged by the word of God. I remember early on, and Elder Gilliland can confirm this, in a session meeting. We were around the table, and we were discussing matters of ecclesiology, and I was arguing tooth and nail a particular position. And one of the elders, <laughs> at one point, took his Bible, shoved it to me, and says, show me. And you know something? It was at that moment that I realized I had little to no biblical basis for what I was talking about. I couldn't show him. 
If our position is true, there is no fear of scrutiny. If it's false, be thankful that we're shown it to be so. But then finally, this serves, I think, as an exhortation to read and listen to and meditate on the scriptures. Thomas Manton lists eight benefits. And I know right now you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a long time. I promise it's short. Eight benefits from storing up God's word in the heart. Number one, hiding his word in the heart helps us guard against wicked thoughts. A mill grinds whatever you put into it. You add corn, it grinds corn. Our minds operate on the same principle. It grinds whatever you put into them. By storing up Scripture in the heart, the mind will grind on Scripture. It'll work on what fills the heart. If we fill ourselves with vanity and trash, the mind will produce rubbish and waste. Number one. Number two. Storing up the word gives us comfort and counsel when faced with trials. When David was alone at night, he received instruction from his heart. Psalm 16, 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I don't mean following your heart in the sense that Oprah tells us. I mean the benefit of a heart filled with Scripture. What does your mind settle upon when you can't sleep at night? Do you think God's thoughts after him? Do you ponder his truths? Do you meditate upon his word? Spurgeon said rightly that great generals fight their battles in their minds long before they set foot on the field of battle. A mind and heart saturated with the Bible will be a source of comfort amidst trials. That's number two. Number three, knowing the scriptures will supply what is needed for prayer. Now, you can agree with me on this. For most of us, the most difficult part of prayer is knowing what to say. Praying up here is far more difficult than preaching, believe me. A person who's ignorant of scripture suffers from barrenness and leanness of soul. Biblical truth sweetens the soul, enlarges the heart, broadens the mind. And when that fountain is good and filled with good, good will be the streams that flow from it. You may have heard this before, but let me repeat it. It was once said of John Bunyan. You could prick him anywhere and he would bleed Bibline. He didn't have one academic degree. Did you know that? He didn't have an academic degree, but he knew his Bible and his knowledge was deep and rich. And that's why we have Pilgrim's Progress. Fourth, searching the scripture helps us to navigate through all the affairs of life. Solomon says, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they'll lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they'll talk with you. At all times, in all places, under all circumstances, they'll guide you. Fifth, knowledge of the Bible is a powerful weapon against temptation. It is, after all, the sword of the Spirit. The only offensive weapon. Everything else is defensive. Without this, the Christian will always be on the defensive. 
reacting to circumstances rather than being proactive. The enemy will have no need to fear you. The enemy will have no need to flee from you. But the sword of the Spirit gives a powerful advantage against sin and evil. John says in 1 John 2, I write to you, young men, the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That's why. How well do you know your Bible? How often do you read its pages? Do you memorize it? Do you ponder it? Are you on the brink of discovery? Number six, heart-hidden truths help sustain us through difficult afflictions. You know something? It's far easier to resist gloom and depression when meditating upon biblical truth. The Hebrews were tempted to despair when they were enduring a very severe trial. And this is what he says to them. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? They had heard it. They forgot it. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. That's why you suffer. That heart-hidden promise can be a great source of support. Number six. Number seven, hiding that word in the heart enables us to be a blessing to others. We're capable of being more edifying and gracious to our neighbors. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, many of you, I'm convinced, study and work around rivers of sordid speech and seedy behavior. Am I right? Yes, it's the world. Foul language, coarse jokes, malicious gossip, slanderous speech. You hear it. The Lord's name drugged through the mud. And you know how destructive that can be. Now compare that with Scripture. A Christian who brings forth out of his treasure is a real blessing. But number eight, lastly. Familiarity with God's word is the only way to know Jesus Christ. And that is the most important benefit of all the many benefits we've listed. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He is the very wisdom of God. Listen to him, watch eagerly at his gates, and that's how we can enjoy the great promise of everlasting life. With all of these things in mind, let's take seriously the example of the Bereans and be more noble-minded and cherish the written word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that in these pages you have revealed your mind and your heart. And in these pages, we can find the revelation of Jesus Christ, your Son, whom to know is eternal life. May everybody within the hearing of my voice trust in Christ as revealed in Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.